Thank you for being here this morning. I'm going to start with a list of names, and I want you to see how all these names are related. See if you can tell me what they all have in common. Simeon II from Bulgaria, Franz Duke of Bavaria, Prince Lika of Albania, Maximilian of Baden, and Karl von Habsburg of Croatia. Now, Paul discoursed with the brethren, so that means you can answer, okay? What do all those people have in common? Somebody in the, in the family center said they're all men. Okay, th that's obvious. Yes, that's true. What else do they have in common? Very close. It's kind of a trick question, David. Very, very close. If you said that they are all pretenders, give yourself a pat on the back. Do you know what a pretender is? I'm sure you do, but do you know what a pretender is as it relates to a monarchy? A pretender is someone who believes they have a rightful spot on the throne, and that throne is currently occupied by somebody else, or maybe it's not occupied, but they think that they have a rightful spot on that throne, but they're not considered for it. We actually have a pretender in the United States. There's a guy living in Colorado that believes that he is the rightful heir to the throne of Wales. He believes he is the king of Wales, and he is petitioning for that position. A pretender is simply someone who believes they have a rightful place on a throne, and it's not being acknowledged. When we talk about Jesus as the King of kings and Lord of lords, there are a lot of details surrounding his royalty and his rule and his reign. But one thing that is absolutely clear and cannot be debated is that he is absolutely no pretender. No pretender. Make no mistake about it. His place is on the throne. However, that doesn't mean that everyone acknowledges this fact. There are some that still refuse to bow before the throne of Jesus Christ. Look with me at Exodus chapter 19. Exodus 19, beginning in verse 3. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. You know what's happening here? God is establishing his covenant with a chosen people, with the nation of Israel. You can read further and see how God constructs, uh, uh, instructs Moses to consecrate the people. Moses goes up to Mount Sinai and receives the Ten Commandments. But I also want you to notice, pay careful attention to verse 6. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God is setting himself up as king of Israel. He is setting Israel apart as a special kingdom filled with priests and a holy people. The, the, world, the word kingdom assumes some things. It assumes a king but it also assumes some other things. In fact, if you're going to have a kingdom, you have to have four ingredients. You have to have a king, you have to have subjects, you have to have law, and you have to have territory. And if you don't have those four things, then you can't rightfully call whatever it is that you're instituting a kingdom. It has to have those four ingredients. If a kingdom is missing any one of these, it cannot rightly be referred to as a kingdom. The king is the source of all rule and power. He hands down the laws and the decrees. This is how a king declares his will. And within the boundaries 
of this kingdom. He is the ultimate authority. The role of the citizens is to submit to the reign and rule of the king and follow his will. Now, we know that Israel had the best king, the best king they could ever have hoped for, yet they constantly face turmoil because of their refusal to submit to the king's rule and reign. How many of you had great parents growing up, even though you didn't recognize it at the time? Maybe at the time you thought that they were rather overbearing. Maybe you thought that their goal in life was to make your life miserable. But as you got older, especially after you had your own kids, you started singing the same tune, didn't you? You found yourself saying the exact same things they said, and it scared you a little bit. But you came to realize that maybe your parents weren't as overbearing and tyrannical as you thought they were. That maybe, just maybe, they had your best interest at heart. They weren't dictators. They loved you. God only wanted what was best for his children, even though they couldn't see it always. He was not doing what he was doing to satisfy his massive ego or to keep his thumb on Israel. It was for their own good. He wanted them to thrive, but over and over again, they failed. And their failures were the direct result of refusing to bow to the king. Did you ever say to your mom or dad, I wish I had different parents? Maybe, maybe your kids have said that to you. Maybe they didn't fully mean it. But that's in essence what Israel was saying to God. We wish we had a different king. They had the best king. But they wanted to be like the nations around them. And so God reluctantly gives them what they want. And as we know, there were some good kings sprinkled in. But for the most part, it was a long line of bad kings who were morally bankrupt, who got rich on the backs of the people, who set up altars to foreign gods. Why? Why wouldn't God just start over with a different nation? Why would he just give up and say, you know what? You people can't recognize greatness when it's in your sight. I'll just go on to some other people that will appreciate me more. It's kind of like the other day I was, was out walking and I saw this this poster, this, this sign, <clears throat> excuse me, that was on a, on a telephone pole. And it said, lost, $100 reward. And there was the picture of the ugliest dog I'd ever seen in my life. And I thought to myself, why in the world would anyone pay $100 to get this dog back? I mean, I had to be the ugliest dog I've ever seen. Why would you want that dog? And then I, you know, quickly realize that you know why they want the dog because they love the dog to them it's not the ugliest dog in the world to them it's the best dog it's a part of their family they love and cherish their dog they'll pay a hundred dollars to get it back because they love it so much because when you love something so much you go to the nth degree don't you God gives the people what they want which is a temporary line of earthly kings human kings and as I said, some of these kings were good, but most of them were selfish, corrupt, spiritually bankrupt, rulers who plunged Israel into deeper and deeper sin, but God was working. He still had a plan. Chances are you've heard the phrase, long live the king. You know where that comes from? It's actually a part of a bigger statement. The king is dead, long live the king. And the idea behind that phrase is continuity. The idea is that though the king has died, another will rise up in his stead that is from the same bloodline and will keep the continuity of the throne. 
The king is dead, long live the king. So behind this is an assurance to the citizens that there will be continuity as the new king comes from the bloodline of his predecessor. And to get a clearer picture of Jesus as king, we need to go back and look at the bloodline. And so we go back to Saul, we go back to David, and we understand that it was common that when someone ascended to the throne of Israel, they were anointed with oil. This made them the Lord's anointed. So when we read about Saul and David in First and Second Samuel, we are literally reading about two messiahs. I've said this before, Jesus wasn't the only messiah. A messiah was someone who was anointed with oil, anointed by God. And so Saul and David were a form of a messiah. They were both messiahs. And have you ever noticed the contrast between these two kings? I mean, the Bible is full of contrast, right? In case you hadn't figured that out, the Bible is filled with contrast between light and dark and and heaven and hell and good and bad and all those things. You see it right here between Saul and David. Saul was a man after the people's own heart as far as his earthly kingdom, but David shows us more of of a heavenly kingdom or at least a heavenly rule. He's a glimpse of what is to come. Now, David had his fair share of forgettable moments, but at his best, he gives us a glimpse of the future. Remember when Saul was in hot pursuit of David? David had achieved rock star status, and Saul didn't like it one bit. He was very jealous. And so he sent how many men to go and and kill David? Yeah, a couple, right? No, 3,000. You'd think a couple would do it, but he sent 3,000 men to go and kill David. That's a little bit overkill. And I want you to notice what is written in 1 Samuel chapter 24, starting in verse 3. It says, He came to the sheepfolds on the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave. The men of David said to him, Behold, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I am about to give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David arose, cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly, and it came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. So Saul was vulnerable. This was David's golden opportunity to get rid of the threat to his life. And in fact, David's men encouraged him to do so. Take advantage of the opportunity, kill Saul. But notice what David says. Far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. Saul was king. And David knew that. And that meant something to David. In David's mind, God put Saul on the throne, and if God wanted to remove Saul from the throne, then that was God's business. David's only responsibility was to bow down. Who does that sound like? Well, it sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? The Messiah who was to come. David had many Christ-like qualities. He He was a great king in so many ways, but he wasn't the perfect Messiah. Yet still, he gives us a preview of what God reigning and ruling through a human could look like. So, notice 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 12. It says, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. 
Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all the visions, so Nathan spoke to David. And you know what the main takeaway is from this passage? The main takeaway is long live the king. That's it. So there's this hypothetical question that gets tossed around among preachers. And the hypothetical question is this. If you had only one sermon to preach, what would it be? If you knew you were going to die and you had only one message to deliver, what would the topic be? And I think mine would be on why men should wear suits and ties to worship and women should wear dresses. I mean, I think that's... You laugh, thank you. I think they thought I was serious over in the family center. I'm not serious. If I were going to deliver one last sermon, if I had only one sermon to preach, I would preach Acts 2. And you say, well, of course, Acts 2.38, you know, baptism. No, not exactly. Because unfortunately, we pluck Acts 2.38 out of context. We rip it from its context. There's a whole lot more going on in Acts 2, and it's all good. Acts 2.38 is great, but that's not the only thing that we should take away from Acts 2. You know, we tend to think that the Jews were, were way off base in their thinking about the coming Messiah, but they weren't that far off base. They knew the Old Testament Scriptures. They knew what it was pointing to. They knew that the Messiah was to come. Where they got off track is in the way that God was going to bring it about. Because as you've heard me say before, the Jews at this time believed that God was going to send a valiant warrior, a deliverer who would overthrow Caesar and anyone else who opposed his rule and reign. He would institute the law of Moses. Everyone would worship Yahweh. That's how it would come about. The Jews never lost sight or conviction that they were indeed God's chosen people, that they were privileged. Their history had been riddled with disaster, but they always held out hope that God would intervene. And so they waited and they waited. And when their king finally arrived, guess what? They didn't want him. They didn't want him. They wanted a warrior king. But what they got was a good shepherd. Just as God lifted up David from shepherding sheep in Bethlehem to sit on a throne, so God raised up Jesus from the grave to sit on a throne. And this is what Peter is talking about in Acts chapter 2. This is the whole of his sermon in Acts 2. He is telling the Jewish audience that the day that they had longed for is here. It has come and you're missing it. God is broken into history and you're completely missing it. Notice Acts 2, starting in verse 29. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to, to, to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter says, the son of David has come to David's city and is now seated on David's throne. But while there's some similarities between David and Jesus, there's some stark differences too. David, was, David died and was buried. Peter says, and his tomb is with us to this day. For it was not David who ascended into heaven. 
That wasn't David, that was Jesus. And David is not Lord in Christ, Peter says. You know what David was? He was foreshadowing of the one true Messiah that was to come. David was a glimpse of a human king whose kingdom was more heavenly in nature. He is foreshadowing of the Christ, but he is not the one true Messiah. Kind of like Hydrox cookies versus Oreos, right? Kind of like Dr. Thunder versus Dr. Pepper. The knockoff may taste okay, maybe a little cheaper, but you get what you pay for. If you want the best, you got to fork over the money, right? When it comes to Jesus as king, he is the best version. Not just a better, he is the best version. He is the, he is the one true Messiah that David gave us a glimpse of, but David was an earthly king. Jesus is our forever king. And really, when you think about it, you hear commentators, you hear preachers sometimes say that, you know, uh, Jesus is sitting on David's throne. I don't believe that. Jesus is sitting on his throne. David just kept it warm for him, right? So, let's be clear about the implications of all of this. This is the political season. And we have heard ads, talking heads, pontificating about what's going to come about in November We have all these different town hall meetings coming up and debates and all these different things. And if you're like me, I can't wait till it's over. November 3rd can't come soon enough. And one day, it will be. It'll all be over. Not just the election, but the whole system. All of it. One day, not just the election, but this earthly kingdom. This carnal construct, all of it will be a thing of the past. But do you know what will have no end? The king's reign. Sometimes I'm asked where I stand politically as a preacher. I'm going to tell you this morning. Here's where I stand politically. Jesus reigns supreme. That is where I stand politically. He's my king. That's who receives my allegiance. I commit to his principles. I channel my energy toward carrying out his plan because my king has an agenda far greater than anyone else's in this earthly construct. My king has an agenda to save the world. And this plan is called the good news, the gospel. And as subjects of the king, each and every one of us must be committed to changing the world through Jesus' agenda first and foremost, above anything else. Now hear me out. I'm in no way trying to diminish the political process or your right to vote. Being involved on the school board means that I'm involved in politics to some degree. I'm not saying you shouldn't vote. I'm not saying that that is beneath Christians, not by any stretch. I think that is a privilege that we have, and I intend to vote myself. However, hear me on this. I will not let a political candidate, a political party, or a political process have my heart, and you shouldn't either. I will not invest my livelihood in a carnal system for a few reasons. First, because Jesus' agenda has done far more to change the world than politics could ever do. Secondly, this earthly kingdom is temporary. And third, Jesus has already won. We know the outcome. I've looked at the back of the Bible. Guess what? We win. 
I know how this story ends. Like you, I want what's best for our country. I want what's best for my state and for my city. I want my children and grandchildren to grow up in a free country, in a nation that is blessed. I want an end to poverty and war and abortion and and evil and corruption and injustice wherever it persists. But I have to constantly remind myself that no matter what happens, Jesus is king, he is in control, he has already claimed the victory, and therefore my hopes, my dreams, my allegiance is not to an earthly system. How can it be? I'm not going to invest everything into a system that won't last. And I won't invest everything into a system that won't last because Jesus said this, my kingdom is not of this world. You know, we like to have a debate in our society, mainly in the sports world, about who is the GOAT. You know what that means? GOAT is an acronym for greatest of all time. And the talking heads in the sports world debate this all the time. Who's the GOAT in football? Many would say Tom Brady. Who's the GOAT goat in basketball? Michael Jordan or LeBron or or, uh, Kobe. Who is the GOAT in baseball? You know, Joe DiMaggio, Babe Ruth or whoever. And this debate will continue until the end of time. You know why? Because it's subjective. It's based on conjecture. No matter what you believe, there's somebody else who could debate you, and you're not any more right than anybody else. But one thing that cannot be debated, one thing that is absolutely certain, is that the greatest of all time is Jesus Christ. Now the Jews had in their minds who the goat would be, Abraham, maybe Moses, but they missed it. We can't afford to miss it. We have to acknowledge that the goat, the greatest of all time, is Jesus Christ. We sing a song sometimes, King of my life, I crown thee now. Pretty song. Not sure it's exactly accurate, though. Not saying we shouldn't sing it. I'm just, I'm not sure it's exactly accurate. Because you don't crown anybody. You don't crown Jesus. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, whether you acknowledge that or not. You say, well, I've made him, you know, the personal king of my life. No, he's already King of kings and Lord of lords. You don't get to crown him. You just bow down to him. That's your responsibility, to bow to the King of kings and Lord of lords. And can I give you some friendly advice this morning? When Jesus returns, every knee is going to bow, even those who refuse to in this life. So I want to encourage you to go ahead and bow today. Don't wait. Bow now and then get up and serve. Can we help you this morning? Do you have a need that we can pray with you about? Luke's going to lead us in a song. If, if you're ready to study the Bible with someone, if you're ready to take the next step in faith, if you want to talk about what that looks like, if you're ready to put on Christ in baptism, whatever your need is, we want to encourage you to respond as we stand and as we sing.